If you would please turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading, which is taken from Revelation chapter 13. We'll be reading verses 1 to 10 of Revelation 13. And then our sermon passage is 2 Samuel chapter 14, beginning at verse 25 and reading through chapter 15, verse 12. 2 Samuel 14, verse 25 to 15, verse 12. But first, Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 to 10. Brothers and sisters, I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. This is God speaking to you. Please give your full attention to his word now as it is read. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now turning to 2 Samuel chapter 14, beginning reading at verse 25. Reading through chapter 15, verse 12. Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his appearance, his handsome appearance, as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he said a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to, still, to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him. And he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. After this, Absalom got himself 
a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land, that every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we once again are thankful for your record, not only of what your people have done, but more importantly and especially what you have done for your people. We're thankful for your word, for the histories that it contains, for the prophecies that it contains, but we confess, Lord, that there is much that we don't understand, and so we call upon your Spirit, who is the divine author of all Scripture. For it is he who breathed it out. We pray for his help now. We call upon him and ask him to give us understanding, to help us interpret the meaning of your word. Please, O Lord, guide us now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Now, most likely, I think we all know this by now, but it's good to be reminded of it from time to time, that David is a type of Christ. He is the Lord's anointed, after all, but David especially points forward to Jesus in a way that no other king of Israel did. The English word Messiah, as you probably know, is a transliteration of the Hebrew word for anointed, and Christ is the Greek word for anointed. Now, it would be reasonable for us to expect that just as there were those in Jesus' day who opposed him, so there would be in the type of Christ, David's day, who opposed him. If there is a type of Christ in the Old Testament, then it serves to reason, stands to reason, that there would be some sort of type of antichrist in the Old Testament. And one of the ways that Jesus is opposed is through Satan's use of counterfeit Christs. The scripture reading from Revelation 13 is about the beast who rises up out of the ocean and to whom the dragon gave his power, his throne, his great authority. And the beast is 
a counterfeit Christ intended by Satan, who is the dragon of chapter 12, the one who gives this power to the beast. He's intended to draw worshipers away from the triune God and to himself. Satan can't create like God can. All Satan can do is mimic God because he is only a creature himself. But his mimicry is pretty effective. He lures the lost away from God like a Pied Piper. Satan loves to make counterfeits of the living and true God. Revelation 12 and 13 depict his counterfeit trinity. The dragon is the counterfeit of the father. The beast is the counterfeit of the son. The false prophet is the counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. And Satan has even established a counterfeit church depicted in Revelation 17 and 18 as the prostitute. Now, Vern Poitras in his book on Revelation writes, Satan is a counterfeiter. He counterfeits God the Father by producing a counterfeit son, the beast. The beast is clearly the counterfeit of Christ the Son. But what in the world does this have to do with our passage in 2 Samuel? I'm glad you asked. In our passage, David's son, Absalom, sets himself up as a counterfeit king. He looks like a king. He behaves like a king. He lures people away from David to follow him. King David, the Lord's anointed, gets his very own counterfeit, and lo and behold, it's one of his very own sons. Let's work our way through the sermon today. I'd ask you to to hold this thought in the front of your minds. Jesus and his people will always face fierce opposition. But the Lord abides in you if you trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus and his people will always face fierce opposition, but the Lord abides in you if you trust in Jesus Christ. The sermon is divided into three parts. The first is beauty masks the beast. The second part is stealing hearts. And the third, counterfeit of the king. Again, the first part of the sermon, beauty masks the beast. The second, stealing hearts. And the third, counterfeit of the king. So let's look at the first part of the sermon, beauty masks the beast. Now it's not that all attractive men are evil. Hopefully you know that. Certainly there are people of whom we are jealous, wishing we could have their good looks, but that doesn't make them necessarily evil. But when a man is described as handsome in appearance in the books of Samuel, it is usually a red flag. Usually not a good thing. Not so much so for women, but for men, it's usually a sign that things are not well. Now, we already know something about Absalom's character based on how he plotted for years to murder his half-brother Amnon after he had raped Tamar, Absalom's sister. But because of those circumstances, it might be easy for us to think of how, given the same circumstances in our lives, we might have done the same thing. There are plenty of brothers who would be irate and angry enough to at least contemplate what Absalom ended up doing. But his true twisted character really comes out in today's passage. And the description of his appearance in verse 25 clues us in that all is not right with Absalom. Saul, too, was described as someone whose appearance stood out, was remarkable. Verse 25 of chapter 14 says that in all Israel there was no one as handsome as Absalom. 
There was absolutely no blemish on him. He was a perfect specimen of a man. And his hair, let me tell you, (laughs) Fabio had nothing on Absalom. I have noticed a disturbing, disturbing trend in men's hairstyles of late. I apologize if I end up stepping on anyone's toes. I haven't kept up with the congregation and your particular, the way that you quaff your hair. But there's a disturbing trend that I've noticed, a trend that I thought had died out in the 80s. Mullets appear to be making a comeback. You know, mullets, business in the front and party in the rear. Well, Absalom's hair was no mullet. He had a full mane. He had no bangs. His hair in a year's time would grow to great length. So much so that when he cut it once a year, and he would cut it, no one else could touch his head. He would weigh it, and it was 200 shekels by the king's weight, which is somewhere, depending on who you read, between two and six pounds of hair. Now, there's no mention of Absalom's wife or of his wives, but Absalom was, has, has four wonderful children, three boys who aren't named here and a daughter whom he named Tamar after his sister. And she's described in verse 27 as a beautiful woman. Again, no aspersions are cast upon her because of this description. And so Absalom has good looks. He has a beautiful family. Absalom has got everything going for him. But despite the fact that he had been back in Jerusalem for two full years, true to David's words in verse 24, Absalom had not been allowed in David's presence at all. Now apparently during this two-year time span, Joab, who had advocated, remember, for Absalom's ability to return to Jerusalem, Joab had stopped communicating with Absalom. No reason is given, but in verse 29, Absalom sent for Joab, but Joab ignored his summons. Absalom sent for him again, and Joab refused to go to him a second time. And now Joab has found himself in Absalom's crosshairs. In verse 30, Absalom tells his servants to go and set fire to Joab's barley field. Perhaps this will get Joab's attention. And they did. And it was successful. Joab came immediately to Absalom and asked him, Why have you set my field on fire? And Absalom answers him in verse 31, Behold, I sent word to you, come here that I may send you to the king. So because Joab didn't come to Absalom when he called for him, Absalom set his field ablaze. He wants Joab to go to the king to ask the king why Absalom came from Geshur to Jerusalem if he couldn't ever see the king. And so Absalom uh, says at the end of verse 34, uh, 32, rather, Now therefore let me go into the presence of the king. If there is guilt in me, let me be put to death. So Joab, duly chastened by the burning of his field, goes to the king. He tells the king what Absalom had asked. And verse 33 says that David summoned Absalom. And Absalom came before the king. He bowed his face to the ground and the king kissed his son. There is some semblance, some appearance at least, of Restoration and reconciliation between father and son. Now, because beauty is so closely associated with virtues, we too can easily fall into the trap of thinking that a beautiful or handsome person is inherently virtuous. And it may be that David had fallen into this kind of thinking, as some commentators have suggested. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, 
Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Physical attractiveness is often conflated or confused with loveliness. And while there may be some overlap, these two things are not the same. Beauty and loveliness are not identical. And all the talk about various types of privileges based on race or socioeconomic level or education, some people have, have, have what's called beauty privilege, which means that because of their attractiveness, they have advantages over those who are less attractive. You've heard the stories of a, of a beautiful woman who's pulled over because she's speeding from a, uh, by a police officer, and, and he lets her off. And those of us who are less uh, beautifully endowed, we don't like that because it's not fair. It's unjust. Why should those who are beautiful uh, not have to pay the same penalty that the rest of us do? There's some truth to that. And so it's hard not to think that David's pride and his handsome son played some kind of role in David's decision to allow Absalom to be restored. But whatever his motives, it will become clear that David's judgment was clouded. He is going to pay and pay dearly for this decision to allow Absalom back into his life. That brings us to the second part of our sermon, Stealing Hearts. Chapter 15, verse 1 says, After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now that he's back in the king's good graces, he is going to show it off. He's going to make it widely known to everyone in the city that he's back. The chariot signifies that he is the prince. He's the one. Now, it's clear that the chariot rides around the city are for show because he has 50 men running before him. He can't enjoy the full benefits of riding in a chariot. It's like a Ferrari being led around by a golf cart. But it makes him look kingly to the people. That's what he's going for. He's looking for, he's looking for the appearance of kingliness. He's out there among the voting population while David presumably sits enfeebled and frail at home. And verses 2 to 5 depict Absalom in ways that make us think of a consummate politician. He's out by the gates to Jerusalem, shaking hands, kissing babies. He's where the deals in the city are made. He intercepts those who are going into the city, seeking an audience with the king to settle disputes, and he tells them there that there is no judgment appointed by the king to hear them. He laments the fact that they're probably not going to be heard, and then he cries out, Oh, that I were a judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And verse 5 says that whenever a man came, uh, came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Now this isn't bad in and of itself. There's, there's nothing wrong inherently with politicians glad-handing the people. But when it's coupled with his negative comments about the king not appointing any judges in the land, it is clear that this is the work of a politician trying to undermine the authority of the person in office Absalom does not have his father's best interests in mind. He only has his. And it was effective. Verse 6 says, Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgments. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now Dale Davis in his commentary on 2 Samuel, he points this out that stole the hearts, while it's a literal translation, it may not be the best translation of the phrase there in verse 6. And he offers an alternate translation. Absalom duped the men of Israel 
And he explains this idiom does not refer to capturing the affections, but to duping the mind. When Jacob deceived Laban in Genesis 31, verse 20, as it's translated in the ESV says, and Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. And the word translated tricked there in Genesis 31 is the same word translated stole the hearts in verse 6 of our passage. Absalom was winning. He had won. He brought them over to his side. People love a good-looking politician, especially when he's a man of the people. Now, as we think about this, in terms of Satan trying to counterfeit who God is and what he does, we realize that there's not much that David can do to combat Absalom's charm campaign. David, whether he's enfeebled or not, he has slowed down. He's not the man that he had been years before. He's had many a trial, difficulty. He's lost children. And the passage gives no indication that David even knows what's going on here. It's almost as if Absalom, though out in the public, he's still operating under David's radar. And David himself, we have to admit, we have to, we have to acknowledge, he has been deceived by his son. So that when Absalom comes to him with a request in verse 7, a request that proves to be catastrophic for David, it's clear that David has no suspicions that anything is up. Counterfeits of the true and living triune God will also try to charm their way into the lives of God's people. It happens all the time. Brothers and sisters, you have to be mindful of the fact that you, you have targets on your backs. And that Satan is sending your way very effective counterfeits. who would rob you blind, even of your salvation, if they could. Unlike David, however, the Messiah to whom David pointed can and does do something about it. He protects his children. He watches after us. You might become entranced by Satan or one of his counterfeit Christs, but if you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, you cannot be led astray. And that brings us to the third and the final point of the sermon, counterfeit of the king. Verses 7 and 8 say, At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to Yahweh in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If Yahweh will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to Yahweh. Now David should have been clued into the fact that something was amiss by it taking Absalom four years to pay his vow that he'd made to the Lord. A vow he'd made to the Lord when he was still back in Geshur, according to Absalom. Now the truth is, he was going to Hebron to fulfill a vow, but it was not the vow that he told David, not a vow that he had made to the Lord. We know that Absalom plotted revenge over a period of years. He did that with his brother Amnon. And now he's about to put his plans of revenge on his father in motion. Hebron, you may remember, is the city where David began his reign as king. There is symbolic importance to Hebron. It's in Hebron, after having received his father's blessing, to go there in verse 9 that Absalom intends to have his counterfeit coronation. In verse 10, we read that he sends his secret messengers throughout all of the tribes of Israel, telling them, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. 
And Absalom, along with 200 men from Jerusalem as his guests, went to Hebron. And verse 11 says that these men went innocently. They weren't part of the plot. They knew nothing about what Absalom was doing. And our passage this morning closes with verse 12, which says that while Absalom was offering sacrifices at Hebron, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. If David is a type of Christ, which he most certainly is, then Absalom is a type of Antichrist. He clearly depicts, in Old Testament fashion, the kind of satanic opposition and oppression that Jesus Christ would face when he came 1,000 years later. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2 writes that those to whom he writes have heard that Antichrist is coming. And then he says, so now many Antichrists have come. In one sense, at its most basic level, anyone who opposes the Lord's anointed is an Antichrist. We're not looking for the Antichrist. There are many. We have to be on our guard. It won't be the way that we've been taught by our dispensational brothers and sisters. We have to be careful. And when you consider the Old Testament types of Christ, such as David, and the opposition that he faced even from his own son, as in our passage today, it takes on a slightly different, if not a, a significantly different, kind of meaning. It's a prefigurement of the type of opposition that Jesus will face. It's a prefigurement of the type of opposition that we who are part of the body of Jesus Christ, face. Jesus was opposed. And the Old Testament types who pointed forward to Jesus, such as David, they were opposed. And those who follow Jesus, we need to be prepared to expect the same kind of treatment. We don't need to be paranoid. We just need to be ready. And so in that sense, yes, all Christians ought to be preppers. We ought to be ready. We ought to be aware We can't grow complacent or completely comfortable. Jesus said in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Therefore, as 1 Peter 4 says in the King James, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. Be ready. Be prepared. Persecution of Christians isn't strange. If it happened to Jesus, it can happen. It will happen to us. Satan opposes all whom the Lord sets up. It happened in David's time, and it happens today, in our time. And we need to keep a couple of things in mind. One is we are not to incite persecution against ourselves. We don't do things that just are deliberately intended to to bring down fire upon our heads. That's not what we do. We just need to live our lives following Jesus obediently, and persecution's going to come. We don't have to go out seeking it. We don't have to try to call attention to ourselves in order to receive it. What's being done to David by his own son in some ways is the consequence of David's Sins, And so we can't count. That's the other thing we need to keep in mind. We can't count consequences for our own sins as a form of persecution. But we do need to remember 
Even when it does happen, we face the consequences for bad decisions, for mistakes, for outright sin. The Lord will deliver his anointed. In the case of David and Absalom, it was not David who fell. It was Absalom, Absalom who fell. And so you should not be surprised when the fiery trial comes, as Peter says. And you can rest assured that you will not be consumed by it. Because Jesus protects those whom he loves. And so just as he protected David, so he will protect you. If you abide with him by faith, then his word abides in you. He has sealed you with the Holy Spirit, who, in the words of Ephesians 1, is the promised guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, those who do not trust in him, they are offered no such protection, at least prior to their regeneration. They belong to Satan. They're his. And if they refuse to repent... If they refuse to believe, if they refuse to acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Lord, as their Savior, then they will spend eternity with Satan in hell. But for those who believe, for you who believe, you, like David, are the Lord's anointed. Not in any messianic sense, not in any salvation kind of way. But you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. You have been sealed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are being kept pure and secure until that great day when Jesus Christ returns. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we truly thank you that though there are many in this world who oppose you and therefore oppose us, that you keep your people safe. You will not allow any lasting permanent harm to befall us. We are grateful for the fact that you are our creator. You are the creator. And Satan, though he is fierce and fearsome, he is a mere creature. He's under your control. And we know, dear Lord, that you will put him away in the fullness of time where we will never be troubled by him again. Father, we pray that by your spirit you would give us discernment, that you'd give us the ability to spot the counterfeits. We pray especially that you would protect us from those counterfeits who seek to do great harm to us. Lord, we pray that you, by your grace, would prevent us from being a counterfeit. Lord, we pray that you would preserve us, protect us, and that you would raise us up on the last day. We pray that we would look forward to Christ's coming with great joy. And we pray this all in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.